0: Welcome to the podcast about everything. I will be your host, Don Mast. This is episode number one, and we will be talking about ghost stories, folklore, fairy tales, and where some of the scariest stories came from, and how they affect our culture and our lives today. Enjoy episode number one. Of a podcast about everything. Hello, Hello, Michael.
1: Hello. How are you?
0: Hey, very well. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Glad to be here, Don.
0: Hey, I'd like to introduce to the folks listening today uh, a gentleman named Michael Allison. He's not only an artist who runs his own studio, Studio EFX, but he's also a, a historian as well as a, a very, very good storyteller. Um, I always enjoy spending time with him. And he's also, you know, how we met we we uh, had met at the Baker Mansion, where your role there has been an interior restoration. Uh, specialist and expert, and I and I must say, all of the work that you've done there, with not only the paintings but also with each room, has has been simply magnificent. And so, um, your work is very very strong, and I and I'm really glad that you're on the show today.
1: Well, thanks. It's great to be here. Um... It's a great way to spend a little time, and uh we don't
0: have to look at each other, which is
1: probably <laughs> good for both of us.
0: <laughs> oh, no, I always love spending time with you, you know I hope uh soon once quarantine's over, we can go out and, and have a barbecue and it just kinda. Uh yeah. sit and relax a little bit and enjoy our time together. And if we um, do
1: this again, we can maybe do it face to face,
0: which is absolutely, even better. absolutely, that'll be great. Uh, so today our topic is is actually quite interesting, and it, it's going to uh, really look at the story that has been told countless times around the world from. Brazil to Canada to the Philippines to Thailand throughout the United States and Russia it's the story of the white lady or the lady in white and you know the story is typically a female ghost that's dressed in a white dress or has some sort of a white garment on or something similar and usually see her in a rural area occasionally near water or near woods and she's either looking for her lost child, looking for her husband or her husband's head. It could be <laughs> due to an accidental death or a suicide or, you know, something like that. And so, you know, I, I, I wanted to just kind of listen to you kind of talk a little bit about, you know, where this story may have come from and, and why people embrace it around the globe. Sure. Uh, oh, and you should include
1: a "murder most foul" in your list. Of oh guys. yes. Uh, <laughs> so um, there, there's a word that I want to use here as we go along and talk, uh, and it's there. It's a pretty powerful word. It's it's a word that was first, I th- believe, coined in the 15th century. It's archetype. And an archetype, most uh, the people who are familiar with it, are probably used to its um, uh, use in as a psychological term. All right, these these universal images that we conjure up or have ingrained in our minds, and we all respond to them in certain very predictable, very human ways. So that works across both. People talk about how the mind works, but also across literature and art and things like that. And of course, I, my interest here is folklore, specifically the folklore of storytelling about things about the supernatural or the things about the unnatural, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and so the, this particular type of ghost and type of ghost story is very very much as you already indicated an archetype uh because it is universal there's something deeply ingrained about human nature that causes every single culture around the world to have a story like this and i find that really really fascinating as i delve into folklore from various countries and various cultures you find these repeated themes happening over and over and over again. So i uh, that fascinates me. So that's first off right off the bat. And the other thing that i do since i am part of the this speakers uh lecture series for uh the blair county historic society which is why i do these talks and it helps me pursue my hobby at the same time. Um, when I when I get when I do a deep dive into this, it's really really interesting to see, you know, everybody wants to claim this. Uh, <laughs> every cultural <laughs> every ta- cultural group wants to claim this, and a- when in reality, it belongs to everyone. So oh, yes. saying that, um, we can get started. Um, there was once upon a time, and this is all factual. It's all historical. There was a, (laughs) uh, at the top of a mountain named Wapsanonic, which is north of Altoona, uh, there is, there was both an overlook, which was a building set up on stilts, almost like a a short fire tower, like you might see now if you're driving through a state park or something like that. And Uh people would go up there and see the view. They would see the city of Altoona uh now it's a parking lot <laughs> and <laughs> and it was it was a parking lot to at one time a radio station that was in the same location and it was a place where when young people had automobiles and they were first you know using their automobiles to go on dates it was a convenient place to go what we called parking of course uh yes and what a famous mm-hmm. disc jockey once referred to as Watching the submarine races. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, oh wow. <laughs> so yeah. So so that overlook was a, was a tourist attraction. There was a narrow gauge railway that ran from Altoona up the Wapsanonic Mountain, and that stopped there. And then it, and then from there you could get off the train, and you could take a little short carriage ride to a hotel that was there as well. So right. there were there were two attractions there, and one was a get out of town attraction. One was a see the sights attraction, and one was get a get out of town attraction. And these are both tied to the legend, all right. So,
0: oh, okay.
1: so mm-hmm. I began to pursue this as a legend, and and I just want to say that you know I'm not here to talk about the veracity of paranormal events. I'm not. I'm only a paranormal. Investigation type person in that I talk about them, um, right? Right. But but I also don't deny that people have weird feel and see and think weird things. Okay. And a lot oh, of yeah. those weird things are paranormal, and they're attempts to uh, to describe some form of experience, what, whatever it is. But those experiences end up as folklore. So that's my right. interest. Okay. So here we go. You ready? I'm ready right. so the white lady was riding in a horse and buggy to elope and was being pursued by her father or racing in an automobile to elope being pursued by her father or returning from a honeymoon or a family outing and i want to add a little uh, additional one here running moonshine wow yes, that's another one <laughs> <laughs> the, the couple are alone or the couple has their baby with them. So it's either before they got married, they're on mm-hmm. their honeymoon or after they've been married for a while.
0: Okay. But see, I've always heard that the husband was missing his head So oh, We'll
1: get there. You don't, okay, don't jump okay. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're traveling at a dangerous rate of speed, whether they're going up or down the mountain. Um, and there is a crash at the devil's elbow, which is a sharp turn on the road. It's, it's still there though. It's been flattened out, Uh, but you can see it. Uh, It's very obvious. You look for the place where the road would project sharply along the, edge of the mountain. And you can see where they blasted away at some of the mountain to make the road a little smoother. Still a fairly decent curve, especially if the weather's slick or at night. Uh, But you can see how sharp it once was because it literally projected out on an angle and then turned, hence the devil's elbow. Okay. So they crash. Um, She wakes up in the car or the buggy or thrown outside of it. And she might wake up to hear the sound of scratching on the roof or a baby crying, all right? Oh, the,
0: okay. the sound,
1: the scratching is made by her decapitated husband or fiance hanging from his tree and his fingernails are scratching on the roof. Or oh. the sound is made by her baby who she goes in pursuit of and she never finds. She dies, uh, you know, and then after her death, her ghost haunts the woods around Wapsanonic Mountain, searching for her baby, her husband, her fiancé's head. Um, <laughs> or she dies and appears in automobiles traveling up or down Wapsanonic Mountain, and she vanages or appears at the devil's elbow.
0: Wow. So
1: there's a type of ghost. It's called a hitchhiking ghost. And, and, right. and, and this is a, an example, number one, of a hitchhiking ghost. And number two, of a white lady. And there's themes here. And, and even though these are variations in our local region here of how people have told this story, there's also some other interest, interesting information because historians have actually looked into this. All right. And mm-hmm. um, a good friend of mine, Who's a historian? Um, has 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 done some uh, done some work on this, and uh, his name's Jared Frederick. Uh, he's a really great guy. Um, as a matter of fact, I would recommend you have him on your um, on on your show at some point. And will do. Uh, he has actually written a piece on this, and he's. Um, actually identified a traffic accident that happened uh, and, it for, and it was written up in an earlier piece in the Altoona mirror. So there's actually a name attached to this ghost. Don't know if it's accurate or not, because obviously if you're either in a horse-drawn carriage or a buggy or in an automobile, <laughs> it, that makes it a little harder to nail it down. But that, that information is available and it's out there. So, um, wow. so there's that, but, um, this is not the only type, or this is not the only place where the story is told. So, um, we look at white ladies and what, what do all these stories have in common? Well, one, as you pointed out earlier is loss. All right. right, Um mm-hmm. And it is often loss of a lover a husband or and or children and 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 usually the two go hand in hand so she not only does she lose her husband or her lover but she loses her children in this somehow in this process it's not always just a single child uh, and when we talk about the german uh story that ties into this um you'll find out that there's more than just that. Uh, So this is something that this white lady story has in common. She's always a woman. Her, Her ghost is searching for someone who she loves, who she's lost. It's either her lover or her child or children. And she is condemned to walk the earth, looking for them for all eternity. It's a, it's a sad, It's a tragic story. Obviously, I mean, it doesn't take much of a stretch to figure that this type of story came about because, you know, before the 20th century, the number of children lost because of disease and because of war and because of just the difficulties of childbirth were enormous. Plus, you know, with wars, there were lots of stories of, you know men who went to war and never returned and women who pined away for their lost you know fiancés husbands
0: brothers fathers etc so so much you know so much tragedy around yeah. the globe you know that could be associated back to just this simple and story that's what
1: makes it an archetype because um of this is a common part of our human experience, especially for women. Mm -hmm. And the primary progenitors of folktales, the people who in some cases took personal stories and made broader stories about them and passed them along to other family members or community members were often women. The, The earliest storytellers were frequently women. And if you don't mind, I'd just like to before we start talking about the other white ladies, I would just like to talk about that a little bit um, about oh, folklore, sure. and yes. folklore in mm-hmm. more general, uh, because folklore has been around forever. I mean, you know, it's basically the stories I always say when I give my talks, folklore is basically the things we do and the stories we tell to tell us who we are. Oh, yes. Everyone loves, Everyone a, good loves story, a good story. Everyone loves a good story. And also, <laughs> ghost stories are among the most popular and oldest stories that have been told, um, when you, especially when it comes to stories of the supernatural. Uh, so, right. Uh, which, it, you know, once again, it's an attempt to explain a world full of phenomena that we don't understand very well. Right now, I mean, okay, perfect example. The, the epidemic we're all going through, you know, there's all this business oh, yes. about, well, they like to call it fake news, but they're basically stories about a circumstance that we don't understand that scares us. And so yes. the fake news can be considered in a way the folklore about this event and unfortunately, a lot of it isn't very helpful, <laughs> but but it still, it's That's still true. directly goes to the origins of this kind of storytelling. It's an attempt to cope with something that we don't understand and to create a story about it that maybe may not make us more feel more comfortable, but may work as a cautionary tale. So... You know this is a double edged sword, so because first of all, mm-hmm. all this stuff was handed down from mothers to daughters to through and throughout different cultures, and many of these are archetypal stories, and they they come down uh, to us from the different cultures in different forms, which are often pretty gruesome because once again they 're cautionary. One of the right. interesting phenomenons about modern culture is the Idea that we have things that are specifically that we can own in a specific culture. In other words, you know, that saying we you own this. You know, well, there was an urge to do that, and one of the first people to do it was a Frenchman named Charles Perrault. All right, and he began hmm. to collect folk tales. He was and it was an aristocrat, but he began to collect folk stories in France and to write them down, and his first book was published um okay the book was the title of the book was something like um old wives tale or tales from women cautionary tales told by village women for children or something like that it was a really boring title even though it was in (laughs) french (laughs) not a lot of sales (laughs) no it, it didn't sell so he retitled it so he started looking at basically French folklore and he looked at the kind of women who would be telling these tales, which is the, you know, the granny type who lived down the end of the lane, who was pr- familiar with folklore and also probably a midwife or knew how to do medical treatments with herbs. Exactly the kind of woman that at a certain time would be labeled a witch. Uh, and one and one of the marks of a witch, at least on in continental Europe, not so much in England, but in continental Europe, was that they would have a goose foot or goose feet. Oh, hence he came up with a much better best-selling title: uh. Tales from Mother Goose. <laughs>
0: okay. That is a creepy new meaning to it, though. Oh, very creepy meaning. Yeah, it's a very, creepy
1: <laughs> yeah, we don't associate it because we have over the centuries sanitized all these stories to the point where, you know, we, ha- we even have a term for it the Disneyization of things. So, um, so, okay, so the two biggest cultural rivals in Europe at that time period were, of course, f- France and Germany. Uh, and, of course, both were made up of provinces at that time they hadn 't completely unified yet, so a gentleman named Johann Gottfried von Herder um suggested that the same thing be done with all those wonderful Bavarian folk tales that were you know going throughout the alpine region. there's all this folklore, and of course uh because he was they he was interested in the german identity i mean there's a fascinating book about the little literal battle royal between the french and the german crowns over who would earn own the venus de milo which was considered the highest point of greek art and thus a european cultural icon of an inestimable value and they literally battled to get it into their museums after it was discovered. That's how intense this rivalry was. Wow! And, and for the Germans, it was all about since they were so disassociated in all these provinces. I mean, you had the old Austro-Hungarian Empire, you had the new upstart Prussians, the Germans. You had parts of Russia, and all, of course, you know, you had the Netherlands, and you had the the Balkans in the south, and all these areas were considered to be technically German. Um, so there was a strong undercurrent of extreme nationalism that, under, uh, that underlie all of this in that if you tell these tales and show how German they are, they are, of course, part of the German identity. Or part see, of the French identity, and you know, in Germany, where that ended up, Ger- yes. German nationalism. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so that's the dark side of this. But on the other hand, you had two brothers, two Ger- two Bavarian brothers named Grimm, who, uh. of course, went out and collected these stories and. You know, while they didn't say these are folklore stories that people told, you know, on dark and stormy nights in the Alps to scare the hell out of each other, you had them saying these were cautionary tales for children, following the lead of Charles Perrault. And <laughs> um, so, so you have all of all of these collections starting. And you know, we were talking about Baker Mansion. There's even a Baker connection here because the only child of Elias and Hetty Baker who actually married was their son David who died fairly early and he married a woman named Shara uh, Shoemaker Tuthill Uh, and after he died he took their daughter she took their daughter and went and married a gentleman in Sweden named Beckman and the daughter um, Louisa Woods was or I mean, excuse me. The daughter of Sarah Louisa became an author, and one of the things she did was to translate Nordic folk tales into Swedish. And of course, wow. and of course, Hans Christian Andersen was famous for his recasting of folk stories. You know, like the Little Mermaid, which if you ever read that oh, yeah. story the, in its original context. Wow! Wow! <laughs> so much more horrifying. Oh, it's absolutely <laughs> blood-curdling. Yes. Oh, oh my. So, anyways, and most of these stories are like that. I mean, you know, we thanks to Charles Perrault, we have Beauty and the Beast, right? Which right. is a werewolf story. So is Little Red oh, Riding. Hood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and the closer you get to the original story, the you no. Know, well, yeah, I intend this pun. The hairier it gets. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and more horrifyingly gruesome, too. So, um, so there you go. These folk tales were circulating around. They were already being collected. And, you know, the people that we consider the fathers and mothers of gothic horror, you know, people like Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker and people like that were heavily influenced by these collections, these kind of collections. And they were in every, eventually in every country throughout Europe. Everybody had their legends. Everybody wanted to push their national identity. So they began pushing this stuff and it became quite influential in these, once again, we'll call them modern writers, you know. Uh, and they became, you know, they became gruesome horror stories or they inspired some fairly gruesome horror stories. So there's that there's our take on folklore and um once again why I find it fascinating because with mm. most of the stuff you know most of these most of these times when you are doing um cultural borrowing especially when cultures start to come together like you know the you have the Austro-Hungarians and the Prussians and the Balk- people of the Balkans all sort of forging ties together and then breaking apart and forming new countries. You have all of those stories and national identities coming together and sort of, it's like putting stuff in a blunder and just whisking it a little bit. It's just <laughs> still there. All those things are still there and in, in kind of discrete chunks that you can figure out you can say oh there's an onion there's a piece of garlic you know um yes and um it's the same thing with these stories and so this is called syncretism uh where you know one culture comes along and lifts chunks of other cultures and you find it in folklore you find it in religion which not to offend people who are very religious but um you know, religion does fall under the category of folklore, along with things like, you know, line dancing and yodeling (laughs) and (laughs) folk music and country music and things like that. Um, And sometimes you can find a lot about a folk story just from listening to a folk song that happens to be about the subject. So that's true. so, So, okay, let's let's talk about We've talked about the White Lady of Wapsie. Let's talk about a couple of other ones. For example, there's a White Lady of Crescent. Oh. Yeah. Um So in Crescent, there is an old estate. It was a summer home uh, for a one of the robber baron families of Pittsburgh. You know, at one time after the Civil War, Pittsburgh was the biggest industrial center of uh, the north um, right. and uh, so it produced a lot of wealth of course everyone knows about Andrew Carnegie and a lot of people know that Andrew Carnegie lived for a while when he was a telegraph operator lived he and he brought I believe his mother here to in Altoona I've yeah. heard that and also um, he had a summer space in Crescent he had a cottage built in Crescent because it was common to seek the mountain air to clear the lungs because you know basically the the atmosphere of pittsburgh with the steel mills and the coke ovens <laughs> and everything like that was oh, yes. a fumy filthy hellhole.
0: <laughs> so yes.
1: so those who could afford it would jump on a train or take their private train To places like Crescent and other parts, other high elevations, to breathe all that stuff out of their lungs and to get healthy mountain air into them and hopefully hold that long enough that it would counteract the effects of going back to places like Pittsburgh. One of those (laughs) very wealthy families was the Thaw family. And they built a summer home outside of Crescent called Elmhurst, which still stands and here's the story so when you're driving along the road this is a hitchhiking ghost you will see a stunningly beautiful woman all in white and if you stop your car she will approach the car in a very quiet voice ask to be driven to elmhurst she will sit silently in the car while you drive her there and when you pull into the driveway you'll be alone because you've just picked up The White Lady of Elmhurst. Oh. Now, here's the rest of the story. Okay. Um, Evelyn Nesbitt was the Gibson girl. She was a model for the artist and illustrator Henry Dana Gibson because of how he used her he also he did he did fine art but he also did illustration and he especially uh did women's fashion illustration which was usually done in pen and ink and he his favorite model was um evelyn nesbitt he drew her and she became known as the gibson girl and was she was the l mcpherson of her day and she she was considered to be the most beautiful woman in america some people thought in the world. Now, because of, and this modeling career of her started when she was very young. She was underage. She was 14, you know, uh, 14 or 15. Two people fell madly head over heels in love with her. Practically everyone who saw her supposedly fell head over heels in love with her. But two of them, one was the son of the very wealthy Pittsburgh Thaw family, Harry Thaw, and Harry wanted her more than anything else in the world. And he was, uh, once again, an archetype, a spoiled rich kid. The other yeah. person who fell in love with her was the architect Stanford White. He was perhaps the most famous North American architect in the world in the late 1800s. He designed a lot of things, including Madison Square Garden, he
0: uh, the wow. uh,
1: railroad station, for the Pennsylvania Railroad in New York
0: City, Grand Central Station. And so, At, and so now we have this crazy we love have a triangle. Crazy with love these...
1: triangle. And supposedly the legend was that Stanford White was so entranced by uh, Evelyn Nesbitt that he got her drunk and raped her. And she was 16 oh. years old, which when that got back to Harry Thaw, who he was engaged he had convinced her to become engaged to him at this point he in a drunken rage went to new york city took a gun walked into the roof garden of madison square garden which was stanford white's personal pleasure palace literally at at the height of a party pulled out the revolver and shot him dead it was the crime wow. of the century there was a huge scandal there were two trials finally the first one was a mistrial the second one found thaw. they called him mad harry uh in in the newspapers and he ended up in a mental hospital because he was found not oh, a wow. by on account of insanity now evelyn nesbitt the story continues her her Life was ruined. Her reputation was ruined. No one wanted to have anything to do with her. But the Thaw family felt obligated and felt sorry for her because they knew that she had been abused by powerful men and that their son was more than a little bit of a crazy person. And so they allowed her to use some of their estates to kind of hide away, including Elmhurst. And that's where the legend comes from. But she didn't live there. That's part of the legend is that she lived there and died there of old age, you know, in disgrace. But no, that's not really true. She 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 stayed there a, a couple of times as she was kind of hiding out from the press. Good place to hide was Crescent. <laughs> so oh, yeah. So subsequently, because yeah. uh, it was known for a place where wealthy people could have their privacy. So um so that's the true story of Evelyn Nesbitt. But the folkloric story is that she, her ghost haunts the road um, outside of Crescent uh, leading up to Elmhurst and that you can see her. Okay. So let's go from there to someone a lot less infamous. That's a really juicy one. Uh, (laughs) That's a great great one. one. Yes. (laughs)
0: uh, We have the,
1: the white lady of the, of the Janesville Pike. Now the Janesville Pike, comes out of tyrone it's the old road out of tyrone all right and the story is this woman died on that road uh in a car crash on her wedding night all right so this is a this is a not as a hitchhiking ghost as you might think like our other two white ladies but this is a summoning ghost all right this is a ghost you have to call to appear so what you do is you drive out And you look for the area where the guardrail ends in Janesville Pike. And I believe you're heading, uh, yeah, you're heading like down a mountain on this. And um, so when you get to the where the guardrail ends, there's a small yellow sign. And there's a place where you can pull over. So you pull your car over. Okay, you ready? You get out. You light a match. And you hold it up. And let the wind blow it out. And when that w- match extinguishes, you say the name Sylvia. Ah. You do it two more times, and if the when the third match blows out, the white lady will appear.
0: <laughs> hmm. Have you ever? Have you this ever one, tried I this? I have not
1: tried. I have driven up and down the both um, the road to Wapsie. <laughs> And 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 of yeah. course, oh, yeah. that yeah. road past Elmhurst. I actually did a consultation with one of the previous owners about their wallpaper at Elmhurst. So I drove there, and I've driven there many times at night, uh, in in all sorts of states of mind. I'll just say, and I've never seen Evelyn Nesbitt. <laughs> uh, now, now I don't know what nah. she would look like, other than as a pen and ink drawing, because that's the only way I've ever seen
0: her represented. <laughs>
1: um, so those are the local stories there are several more white ladies they're all over the place we have a bunch down around Gettysburg because you know every place when you really get down to it every place is haunted and mostly they're haunted by stories but um Mm -hmm. the stories are great and there's no reason not to go looking for this stuff. I mean, I, the one thing that's really bad is like an armchair skeptic who doesn't really go looking for anything. So here right. we go. Are you ready? This is a story of the white lady of Berlin, Berliner Schloss. And Berliner Schloss is the traditional castle that was used as a center for government uh in Bavaria so this is the story during the 15th or the yeah the 15th century uh a woman whose husband was the duke I guess it's a good enough word uh the Berliner Schloss and who is part of the family who built it it's a traditional home for one of the ruling families in Bavaria um he went off to war and died she had two children and uh to him and he never returned he probably went to a crusade or something like that and never returned so anyway um she fell in love with let's just say the rich guy in the next castle over you know and she began oh, okay uh, in her way because you know we're talking about a long, long time ago, and women were not supposed to be that aggressive, not even rich women, Uh, but she began to make it known that she found him attractive, and he was unmarried, so they began seeing each other, and she began making plans that someday there will be a wedding, and he said, there can never be a marriage between us, for there will always be two pairs of eyes upon us both oh he was a he was a widower okay Ooh. sorry sorry lost lost okay. part of the okay. right here. he was a widower so she so he meant what he meant by that was the spirit of her deceased husband and his deceased wife were now in heaven watching over them and that it was inappropriate to to pursue this romantic relationship with these spirits watching them, oh, but okay. she had two children, and she thought he meant that the children were in the way. So she killed oh. her children for the love of this man. No, and it was, of course, found out. It was a huge disgrace. It destroyed oh. the relationship, and she became an out. She went from being, you know. A, a rich widow to becoming an outcast social outcast. So the story is wow. That in order to, you know, try to fix things, she had to go beg the Pope for forgiveness. So she started a pilgrimage to Rome where she literally, uh, uh, uh prostrated, pro- prostrated herself. Every so many feet, she wore sackcloth and ashes Uh, You always like the walk of shame from Game of Thrones, but the whole way from Bavaria to Rome. And when she got to Rome, she begged the Pope for an audience. Eventually, he relented. He saw her and told her that her her sin was so egregious and so horrible that it would never be forgiven unless she did the following things. She went back to Bavaria. She founded a convent for nuns and stayed in isolation there for the rest of her life so she agreed to do that but on the way back she sickened she got sick and she died and she never made it back home she never founded the con convent so her sin was never forgiven by the pope and therefore her oh. ghost which appears as a mo- mournful moaning woman in white has haunted Berliner Schloss ever since.
0: <sighs> now that is a, yeah. a, a tragic story. You know, you would. I, I, it, it totally took me for a twist yeah. when you said that she killed the children. I, I, I yeah, was not expecting it would go that that's way. The
1: way. Now there wow. are variants on that story, but that's the classic variant. variation on it the woman who is named um the actual woman of the husband (laughs) who lived in berliner schloss and was a member of the royal a member of the royal family during this time period he was married to someone completely different um so there is a huge amount of folklore here a huge amount of folklore and but once again you know it's the idea of a loss of a love Loss of children. Yep. Um, a distraught woman driven out of her mind with grief over something that's happened or something mm-hmm. she's done or has been done to her. And she then becomes a ghost that haunts an area. And it's, she's forever looking for her lost children, the children she killed. You know, I mean, this is just heartrending. But but I as wow. I said. The, when you start getting into even a um, country of origin source for these stories, mm-hmm. no pun intended. Well, yeah, of course, they get grimmer, grimmer and grimmer <laughs> as you go backwards. <laughs> um, so, you know, yes, the, the, the idea that if you're going to explore these kind of stories, you need to kind of buckle up. Like I said, you know, right, Little right. Red Riding Hood. Oh, what a cute story! Yeah, it's threatening. Oh yeah,
0: but it's a werewolf story. You know, <laughs> it, it's so. I I think you're encouraging people to go back and actually read the old, uh, you know, Grimm's fairy tales, the old Grimm's fairy tales, you know, before they've been edited down, mm-hmm. as well as like Aesop's fables and the other ones, just to 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 capture the real
1: meaning of the stories you know the story about this when i was when i was a kid um both my parents worked so i was shunted between my grandmothers and my mother's mother had it was my favorite place to stay because she was she was more with it she was she wasn't a uh, an old german farm woman <laughs> she she yeah she was she was <laughs> as irish catholic as you can get and she was full of humor and uh, and a wild temper and but there was lots of music and books and things like that in her house well i found a book a bunch of old fairy tale books that had been saved that belonged to my uncle i believe they were published in the 20s and they were i would say much closer they were a lot of uh, English and Irish and French and some German stories, plus other children's literature. Oh, wow. And this was children's literature of the first part of the 20th century. And they were, at, once again, as I said, a lot grimmer than what we know today. You know, the the story mm-hmm. of Snow White oh, and yes. Rose Red, which is a se- separate story from the story of Snow White, is pretty gruesome. <laughs> um But so I read these and among the stories was Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels. That was a separate book. So I read Gulliver's Travels when I was 11, 12. And so, of course, it had been annotated and adapted at many times it was turned it had already been made into a couple of animated cartoons and probably in the 50s a live action version early 50s late 40s something like that that was in color and and right. you know so it so i read it and of course i was in catholic school and was you know being taught by nuns and we we were assigned to read gulliver's travels and i said oh i already read it and I, that so and none was surprised that I'd already read it and said, What was your favorite part? So I said, Well, you know, that's the part where they're celebrating the war in Lilyfoot, and he gets really, really drunk, and a fire breaks out, and he pees all over the palace to put it out, and pees on the king and queen. <laughs> I was not asked to talk about books I'd read in class after that. <laughs> and you know that's left out yeah, you... that's left out of a lot of like versions for children of Gulliver's Travel. They leave that part out because it's considered to be too gross. Plus, but yeah, you know, if you if you know anything <laughs> about Swift, you know that really yes. that was what he was all about. <laughs> was peeing on the king and queen. Exactly. You had the original <laughs> version. He a, yeah, he was. And that he was, was awesome. He was very political. <laughs> he, he was the guy who, right? when um, the British Parliament wanted to follow the lead of the economist Thomas Malthus, who, who said that supply will ne- never exceed demand and therefore starvation is simply a natural part of the process. So they used that as an excuse mm-hmm. to starve the Irish. He wrote an open letter to, I guess, the Times of London and said, you know, Parliament's taking the wrong attitude. They shouldn't be starving the British if they want to treat them like cattle. Feed them well and then slaughter them and eat them. So he, he suggested oh. that instead of the British starving the Irish, that they fatten them like cattle and then eat them. And <laughs> <laughs> eat them. Yeah. <laughs> So if you so, think we're so nasty, in I, I, I think today... what...
0: <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, I, it, and and my wife and I have said that for for a number of months now that you know I actually think that we were more vicious and and more oh, violent yeah. back in the day when they were like yeah. quartering people yeah. and, and you know no. I, you don't see a lot of that today and and, and so there were, extreme violence and even in the stories you know the old fables you know no, they didn't leave, go they didn't the hold woods. back. You and... can be
1: you could be found by a witch who will fatten you up so she can eat you or bake you into gingerbread. <laughs> you know? Um yeah. I mean that's and that's true. a nice
0: story. That's a nice story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow. It it's so it's so I think too where this where this is kind of going to is you know, all these stories have been passed now, generation to generation from Mm -hmm. mothers to sons and daughters at at bedtime and so on. And then they've been brought into movies. You know, some of the movies we've seen today, you know, could be coming from some of these old, old fables. I
1: don't know how much time we have left, but uh, well, at some point we'll do a teaser. Maybe the next thing we could talk about is um, wolf stories. Because um, uh, the, the 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 business on the white lady came from my first talk. It was my t- my first talk was called uh, "White Ladies, Hairy Beasts, and Things That Go Bump in the Night," and so it looked at ghost stories like the white lady, and it looked like it looked at um, uh, hairy beast stories, werewolves, bigfoot, things like that. Got what we nowadays we <laughs> call them when people are reporting them as a cryptid, as a you know, uh, they call them dogmen. Oh yes, mm-hmm. but they're basically werewolves, right? And you know, and and I talk and that yes. one and maybe that could be the next one. I, I we I talk in there a lot about um, modern takes on werewolves are not so much cryptid, but to borrow uh, a phrase made popular by the head of another podcast, they are scripted. They are stories that were adapted yes. to film. And much of what we know, what we think we know about, say, werewolves and vampires, you know, were conjured up by mangling various European folktales and then manufacturing these new creatures out of whole cloth. So what we think we know about werewolves? No. Uh, (laughs) What we think we know about vampires? Especially the the shiny, sparkly ones that are so popular these days. No, uh, oh know, yes, that yes, that whole Dracula thing has much more to do with British Victorian xenophobia and the sexualizing of foreigners than it has to do with actual vampires. Oh wow, it's a it's a really it, it's a really okay. interesting psychological <laughs> portrait. <laughs> Of not only Victorian England and Ireland, but of the man Bram Stoker, who's yeah, he's a pretty weird guy.
0: <laughs> yes. Oh well, a lot of the authors and writers yeah. back in the day were pretty odd, you know. They, yeah. Yeah, they were quite unique, and 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 I must say, I I think you've totally brought the audience cool. to the next chapter. You know, the next podcast. I mean, I am extremely excited. To be able to talk about this next subject you know where we get into the wolves yeah. where we get into what hollywood has done with things and uh, you know yeah. how they make us think about things like this now and so you know i i must say michael i appreciate your time i i really enjoyed this story talking about the the white ladies talking about the folklore everything that have gone on through the urban legends all the fables and you know, you're well, a fantastic you. storyteller and uh and, and you're a great friend. And so what I'm going to do for the folks listening, I'm going to put your okay. information in the links below uh, that, that, that folks can click on to learn more about you. I'm also going to include a map that'll kind of give people an idea of where sure. Crescent is, where Tyrone is here in Pennsylvania. And then also um, uh, some little mm-hmm. links to like the Gibson girl, for example, and to You know, some of the other uh attractions that we spoke about because I think that will really help you to kind of do your own research and kind of dive in and explore uh, and and these urban legends on your own. So
1: don't just be an armchair um explorer. Go see this stuff. I mean if you've never oh yes, if you've never gone on, on a ghost tour, once we're able to move around a little more freely, go on a ghost tour. You know, um maybe you'll get scared, maybe you won't, but at least you can say, you know, I experienced that and there's something there, but it wasn't what I thought, or there's really something there and I it scared the heck out of me. You know, um, everybody's gonna have a different response. <laughs> but the point is is to be a participant, not just to sit back and watch yeah, you know, the latest bro venture show. <laughs> yeah, you know, looking looking for the son of Bigfoot oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, on TV.
0: Yeah. Yeah, everything is so watered down, and yeah, it's, yeah try to get the yeah, real story. Get the real yeah, story. Exactly. You know, really do your research. Exactly. It's been a blast. Well, I appreciate it, Michael. I'm gonna go hop in a, I'm gonna go hop okay. in a car and go look for the Gibson girl in Crescent. So, um, I appreciate your time. And uh, tune in, guys, uh, next week when we're gonna look at uh, wolves, Hollywood, and and more stories about the the creepy things in Bye-bye. life. So, talk to you guys soon.